Hi, I'm Lisa Salters. Normally, I'm patrolling the sidelines for ESPN's Monday Night Football, but today, I'm inside the truck with Stephen Paul. This is Inside the Truck, presented by Summer Skates. Show your game off the ice. Inside the Truck, pulling back the curtain on sports television production. Here is Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years. I've directed all the sports you're familiar with, including hockey, football, basketball, and some you're not, Gaelic hurling and sledge hockey. Currently, I'm the director for the NHL's Carolina Hurricanes on Valley Sports and can be found on social media at From Ice Level. And I'm Steve Lansky. I've been in live sports television for over 40 years, and I've produced all the sports you're familiar with. Hockey, baseball, football, basketball, and some you're not. Golf, rodeo, X Games, darts, and freestyle skiing. On Twitter, I'm at Big Mouth Sports. E25, Steve. What an exciting episode we have today. We have a very, very special guest with us. And, and normally at this time, we'd kind of open up the mailbag and, and discuss some listener feedback or on after the pod, we'd, you know, regale listeners with some story or, you know, life, life-changing event that happened since our last podcast. But Steve, there's no time for that today. We have to get right into it because we have a very special guest and, and perhaps we have some listeners for the first time today as a result of this special guest. So we have to get right to it. Are you saying that some of our guests aren't special? Is that what you're saying? Because that's what I'm hearing. I think what you mean is today, Lisa Salters is an extra special guest. Is that correct? Yeah, that's probably better. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Since joining ESPN in 2000, Lisa Salters has covered the spectrum of sports and sports news stories, including the Ray Carruth murder trial. That was right out of the gate in her career there. She's covered FIFA World Cups, Winter and Summer Olympic Games, and in 2012, she was assigned to Monday Night Football. Monday Night Football debuted on ABC on September 21st, 1970, with Keith Jackson, Howard Cosell, and dandy Don Meredith in the broadcast booth. In addition to working the Monday Night Football sideline, Lisa Salters also fronts ESPN's award-winning news magazine, E60. Lisa Salters works the sideline on Monday Night Football, Paul, but she didn't start in live sports television. She started in news. And one of the things I love about this interview is she talks about why she got into sports and how and why she left news. For me, if you want to be in front of a camera, this interview with Lisa is absolutely fascinating. Lisa, uh, this is our 25th episode, uh, affectionately known as E25 in the inside the truck world. Uh, I suppose it would have been more appropriate to have you join us on E60, uh, but uh, <laughs> truth be told, Steve and I could not wait that long to talk to you. I can come back in, what, 35 <laughs> days if you want me yeah, to, or, yeah, or yeah. Well, it would be? <laughs> it would be a lot more than that. It would be another, uh, it would be- This I'm is 25 with, years? Yeah, no, it would be 30, <laughs> it would be 35 more episodes, Lisa, and we're not going to oh, wait okay. that, we're not going to wait that long. Excited to get started today. So. I guess there's no better place to start than the start. Tell us about uh, your aha moment, uh, that moment when you decided, hey, I want to pursue a career in sports broadcasting. Aha. I'm not sure if I had an aha moment. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm positive that I, that I did not. Uh, it was ESPN that came calling after me. Um, I spent the first half of my career, 12 years uh, to be exact, uh, doing news. 
and so it wasn't until ESPN came calling in 2000 that I uh, that I decided to make the switch. So doing s- sports was never anything that I aspired to do. It wasn't I wasn't like many uh, folks today who get into journalism and that's their dream. Um, it just kind of happened that way. I, I did couldn't have predicted it. Uh, didn't really have any desire at all to do sports. I love sports. I've always loved sports throughout my entire life. Just didn't see a career in it. Um, it just goes to show you how, uh, you know, you can make all these plans in your life and sometimes, sometimes, uh, things don't go as planned, but they go exactly how they're supposed to. So Lisa, if you didn't see a career in it, why'd you do it? Uh, well, I was doing new. I was already, you know, I guess you would say successful, successful journalist. I was with ABC News at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I just didn't, it wasn't that I, it wasn't that I didn't want to do sports. I just never considered doing sports. I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. And to me, journalism was hard news. I never really considered sports journalism like, you know, kids do today. Uh, it just wasn't, it just wasn't on my radar. And so when ESPN came calling, asking me to do it, I thought, well, that would be kind of fun. Um, you know, I've already spent 12 years doing news and news was getting kind of heavy. You know, I was doing things like, um, TWA flight 800, uh, the Matthew Shepard murder, the OJ Simpson trials, um, the bombing, uh, in Oklahoma city. I was doing a lot of heavy stuff. And so the, the idea of, of doing sports seemed refreshing. And um, ESPN kind of had been asking me for two years. It, they, they kind of started in 1998 asking me to come over. And I wish I had done it then. Uh, I waited two years because I was so hesitant about making the switch from news, which at the time was supposed to be the pinnacle, ABC Network News, the pinnacle of journalism, and then going to do sports. So I kind of, you know, hesitated for two years. And uh, um, looking back, hindsight being 2020, uh, I wish I had uh, done it sooner. So you make the switch to sports um, and to steal a sports analogy, I guess you become a raw rookie again. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that you were able to carry over from your extensive news career uh, to make that transition to sports any easier? Uh, everything. Everything. Because I always tell people, st- journalism is journalism whether you're covering sports or entertainment or politics uh, or crime, uh, whatever it is, it's, it's still the same. The, the principles of journalism are the same. You guys know that it's, you know, being accurate uh, and being informative. So everything that I learned doing news, I carried over to sports, how to be on television, live television, how to, you know, write short, concise, uh, factual and informative stories. Um, nothing changed when I transitioned to sports except uh, except my office, my venue. I went from you know going to crime scenes and um, bomb scenes and courtrooms to arenas and stadiums. So let's say you're doing a Monday Night Football game. How long does it take you to prep for that broadcast? I mean, I realize you're prepping 52 weeks a year, 365 days. But for one specific game, just kind of take us a little bit through the prep that you have to go through. All week from from the moment that the the game ends on Monday, uh, Monday night, uh, Tuesday, travel home. 
I try to give myself off Tuesday, um, even though it's a travel day that counts. <laughs> you're tired and uh, you're weary, but I try not to do anything on Tuesday. Wednesday starts up with, you know, you your deep dive into the next two teams. Uh, we get about 50 pages of research uh, that I start reading that night um, and, and reading really throughout the rest uh, of the week. Thursday uh, is when we have our, our conference call where we all get on the phone together and kind of discuss the, where we think the game might go on Monday, what the storylines might be. Friday, uh, this year, Friday, uh, we would do Zoom calls with the home team. Generally, we would go to the home site that, or to the site of the game then and go to practice uh, and then do our production meetings after that. But everything has been done uh, via Zoom, was done via Zoom this year. Sunday, the arriving team comes in. Uh, again, we would do that. We did them this season via Zoom um, where we would talk to the head coach. Same with the uh, home team, the head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. And then we would decide on that Thursday conference call, we decide what other players you know, obviously we're going to get the quarterback. What other players we're, we want to talk to uh, kind of in person or virtually this, this season? So it would be about four or five players for each team. Do the same thing on Sunday, our Zoom production meeting. Uh, and then um, Monday is the game. Tuesday, it starts all over again. How much of a difference is it for you to do your job via Zoom rather than being sitting in a, in a hotel suite uh, with the coaches, coordinators, and players. How much did that affect uh, your ability to do your job? Well, I don't think it affected the, the quality necessarily. I, I've been saying that we, we're doing the same job. We're just doing it a little bit differently. Um, so, yes, you would rather be in person, um, in front of the person, so you can just because of, you know, the relationships that you have, you, you miss seeing these guys and being in front of them and they walk in the room, you want to give them a hug. You haven't seen them since the last time you had them. That could have been two games ago or it could have been last season. Um, so you miss kind of that part of it. But as far as being able to talk to them and have a conversation, it's the same like for you guys. Like you, you can have a conversation with someone via Zoom or on the phone or I do many, many interviews. Uh, you know, guys come into the uh, to our production meetings, but I could ask for two or three or four other guys that don't have to necessarily jump on that zoom or come into that production meeting. When we're, when we're in person, just call me on the phone, have them call me on their way to the facility, on their way home from the facility. Just need a couple minutes. Just want to chat, check in with them and talk to them about the game. Um, so as long as you're able to communicate, however, the, you know, whatever the form the communication is in, as long as you're, the access is really all you need. If we didn't have access, then I would say everything was completely different this year. We didn't have any access to the players and we weren't able to, to do anything. But we had access. It was just different this season. Lisa, what do you like most? About, I mean, you touched on it a little bit maybe about those pregame meetings. And conversely, what do you like the least about sitting down with all those coaches and players? Um, well, you know, you're sitting there in a conference room, uh, and it can be really long because, you know, we're going to talk to the quarterback at least 20 minutes, the head coach at least 20 minutes. And so you could be in that room up to three hours and we have been before. So you start, you know, you start getting a little antsy, you, start, you know, you're kind of tired. You, um, if it's in normal times, you've flown in on Saturday morning and you had right from the airport to practice and then right from practice into a conference room that they have at their facility. And, you know, it's getting on two, three, four o'clock and you're 
yeah, you're tired um, and you're starting to starting to fade a little bit. So that that uh, that can be trying. But most of the time they feed us. That's very nice. Uh, we eat in the team cafeteria. We get food, bring it up to our conference room. Um, but just kind of the length of the production meetings can sometimes be um, challenging. But doing it via Zoom, you're in your hotel room or you're at home. Um, so that's been you know, that's a nice thing, uh, a blessing and a curse, I guess you could say, because you, you do miss being in person, but you are able to kind of be at home and, uh, you know, get up, go get a drink of water, go to the bathroom. Not that you couldn't do that in the conference room, but, but uh, you know, being at home a little bit more, that hasn't been such, such a bad thing, but definitely, definitely just miss kind of the, the interaction because, you know, as, as you guys know, this business is, it's nice to get to go to the games and get to, to, to do those things that most people think that's the highlight of it, but it really is about the relationships and players will tell you the same thing that it's great to be on teams and competing and that kind of thing. But many players say what they value the most, are you know, the locker room, the, the relationships that they, that they have built with, with other players, with coaches, with their families. And so when that's kind of taken away that ability to be able to, um, you know, just kind of hang out and, and see guys and just talk, uh, you know, informally, uh, you, you miss that. You talk about that in a, from a preparation standpoint, but let's now to, let's move to game day now. And, and a lot of time let's, we'll use Monday night football or football game as the example, hanging out on the, you know, get to the field early, you know, when they're out there stretching and, yep. and, and you can spend a lot of time and talk to a lot of people that way. How has the post-COVID era changed that on game day for you in the way that you execute your role? Yeah, well, that stinks. That uh, I mean, it, it's <laughs> that COVID has really, uh, you know, I have to watch my language. It's really jacked up the sideline reporter for football and courtside for basketball as well. Just the other day, I was doing a basketball game uh, in Philadelphia, and I had just such a small little question that I wanted to ask Steph Curry and. It was something that I normally just would have, you know, when he was out in the court pregame, shoot it, getting up shots. I just would have waited for him to finish or got him as he came out in the court and just said, hey, you know, what's up with you and your brother Seth, this this feud that you guys have when you had when you're growing up between Skittles and M&M's? Because that was something that they were going to have on their shoes to kind of uh, keep the feud going. Steph was wearing Skittles shoes and his brother Seth was going to be wearing M&M's. And I thought that was just a cute little story, but I wanted to ask both of them, just like, what, where did that come from? And give me a little background. It, it back, take me back to when you guys were kids about that. And I forgot to mention it on Zoom. And I thought, geez, this is just something that I would have asked them on the court, but I don't have access to the court anymore. So instead, I asked the PR person, Raymond Ritter, who was fantastic, and said, I forgot to ask him about this. Can you? And he's like, no problem. He asks him. He gets me all the information that I need. But I was just thinking then, like, COVID stinks. Like, it just it just limited uh, just some silly thing that I wanted to ask that I'm certainly not going to bother to say, hey, can Seth, Steph or Seth call me back for that? No. Um, but the same is true with football. There, you know, you're right. We're, I'm there six hours before the game doing things for SportsCenter. So when the players get there two hours before, I'm already there. And so when they come out to warm up and to stretch – um, if there's somebody that I need to talk to, and there's usually a couple of guys, especially the kickers, uh, you always kind of want to check in with the kickers and, um, just can't do that anymore. I haven't been able to go to the field. So, um, I'm really hoping that that 
that we get back to, you know, quote unquote, normal this season. Uh, I'm vaccinated. I hope that if I could just tell the NFL, like I'm vaccinated. So <laughs> like, can I get down there and get next to the guys again? That uh, that's what I'm hoping happens. When you're doing a sideline report, do you prefer human interest or do you prefer X's and O's or does it depend on the moment? Like what makes a great sideline report for you? I think it's a great sideline report if people at home remember it. And if they go next the next day to a friend of theirs and be like, hey, heard last night on the game. Did you know this? That's what I would consider a, a great sideline report or the ones where the announcers um, continue talking about whatever it was that you talked about. As a sideline reporter, the worst thing that can happen is if you go have a report, they go down to you and you give your report back to you guys and there's crickets. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. So I guess no one really gave a crap about that. Um, so uh, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a, an injury report uh, or if it's, um, you know, a story about, uh, you know, a human interest story, like you said. Um, it doesn't matter to me as long as viewers find it interesting. That, to me, makes a great sideline report. So, Lisa, do you produce your own content uh, for NFL and NBA? I do. That's awesome, I guess, right? Because you're able to, you know, take a massive pile of information, whittle mm -hmm. it down to the top, you know, 6, 10, 12 items that you want and be able to sell that one-on-one -on -one with the producer exactly. uh, as the show goes on. There's no third sort of third party thinking, well, maybe that, maybe that doesn't really work here, Lisa. Right. The role that you execute at that level, say NFL, NBA, are other uh, sideline and courtside reporters like that? Or does this make you special? No, I think so. I think that I think Michelle Tafoya does the same way, Pam Oliver. Um, I think, you know, that's part of the job is that the producer has to trust that you're not just going to hit them on the talk back saying, hey, I can add to this or I have I can tell the story right here that you're not going to do it uh, without putting some thought into. Is this the best time? Uh, is this the right story to tell here at this moment? So there's a lot of trust that's involved as well, because. No producer wants to go down to the sidelines and have you say something that's totally irrelevant and it doesn't fit in the moment. Um, then they would be like, then you would hear those crickets. <laughs> that's when you hear the crickets. <laughs> uh, so I think all of us do it the same way, but it, that's part of the job is being able to tell a story quickly uh, and to you know be thoughtful about it, to know what to say and the right time to say it. So you talked a little bit earlier about journalism and I want to see if I can word this properly I'll probably fail your take on sports journalism today in the world versus maybe what it was when you started do you have a kind of an overview on sports journalism and what it is now and where it's going do you like where it's going do you not like where it's going I mean absolutely I mean it's, it's no secret like you know back in 2000 uh, 21 years ago to me and I think other people who were in news, we did not think of sports journalism as being the same as, as journalism. It wasn't as uh, prestigious, if you will. And so I had many of my colleagues at ABC telling me, what are you thinking going to ESPN? You, this is career suicide. Like this just doesn't happen. And up to that point, it had not happened. Uh, there was no one who had gone from from doing hard news to go do sports that just didn't happen now plenty of people have done it um and in fact in the months after i left i had so many colleagues saying 
Hey, can you get me a job at ESPN? Can you, can you tell me who to talk to? Can you put in a good word? At least three or four. Um, and so now you see people coming from, from news over to sports, but back then uh, you didn't. In fact, it was the other way around. Remember at the, right around that time, Robin Roberts left to go to, to ABC. She did. That was much more, that was much more um, the norm because that's what you aspired to do as a journalist back then is to get to the network. And so ESPN back then was considered like the little, the little, the little sister, little brother, ABC, that's where it's at. And so, you know, it made sense for Robin to make that move to go to the network and for me to go the opposite way from the network to ESPN, my peers were thinking you're an idiot. And uh, I just kind of did it knowing that maybe I am being an idiot, but I'm not really enjoying the hard news anymore. So I want to give this a shot. And if I don't like it, I know that I can always go back to news. Uh, That was the agreement that I had with ABC. ABC and ESPN are owned by both owned by Disney. So I was basically just making a lateral move within the company, going to a different different wing uh, of the company, so to speak. So if I didn't like it at ESPN, I was told you can come back to ABC. And at ESPN, you got a chance to do some, I guess, what would be sort of called hard journalism with E60 and Outside the Lines. Uh, talk a little bit about your history with that uh, amazing show. Yeah, so it, it's funny how I didn't have this vision. Um, like, had I been smart enough to know that um, whether you're doing hard news or or sports, that the journalism part is all the same. Um, you know, the stories that I've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to tell for E60, um, it's a, a journalist's dream <laughs> to be able to have the long form uh, format and platform that I have. So I get to go to games, which all the sports people are like, oh, that's the best part of your job. It, it is a, a, a nice part of the job. I get to go to the games, but I also get to tell these long uh, long format stories and to do these deep dives into stories that are impactful and compelling. So to me, I feel like I have the best of all worlds, not just both worlds. I have the best of getting to go to games. Uh, I get to host E60. So I get to do a little bit of anchoring there. Uh, I get to do E60 stories. So I get to do some storytelling there. Um, And, uh, you know, on game days for Monday night football, uh, I'm doing, uh, you know, sports center and things like that pregame. So I get to do like the typical kind of Johnny on the spot reporter stories that are a minute and a half, two minutes long. So I get to do all of it. Uh, and to me, that's been, uh, that's been the best part is that I didn't have to pick one, one kind of format or, or the other. I get to do all live television as well. I get to do live a lot. So I, there's a, you know, there, there's nothing that I, that I have been, um, uh, uh, that I don't get to do that, you know, journalists might say, well, this is my favorite thing. And that's my favorite thing. I, I get to do all of it. Perfect. So now that you mentioned live sports television, the three of us know quite clearly that it can go off the rails at any moment. Yeah. Do you have a story that you'd rather not remember of something that happened? Could be news, could be sports, where it's like, wow, I can't believe that happened live on the air. Uh, there was one time I was doing a live shot when I was with ABC and I was covering the OJ Simpson trial and I was doing a live shot. My job back then was to do live shots for any ABC uh, station around the country. So you could pay and get a live shot with me and you don't have to pay to send your, you know, your local guys out there and have them up in a hotel and out there for all that time. You had me there. 
So you could pay for me uh, in five minute windows. And so um, I was doing, I don't know, 10, 20 of these a day. Um, and uh, one time, and I would, you know, finish one. Okay, back to you, Bill and Sue. And then the next one, okay, um, Barbara and Tom are next. And so I was just going from one to the other, the other. And it got to one day, one time out of two years of doing this, I could not remember who I was supposed to be throwing it back to. And I said, back to you. And I just, I just was like, uh, and they were like, don't worry, Lisa. It's whatever they said their name was. And they were like, don't worry. We know you do a lot of these a day. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like that, that was just really, um, embarrassing for me. But, uh, and there was another time seconds before I was going to go on the air, somebody sprayed some bug spray. It was out on East Mauritius when uh, fleet flight TWA went down, a TWA 800 went down. And we're all out there at night and we're out there on the banks of, you know, of the ocean, of the Atlantic Ocean. And um, someone sprayed some bug spray and it just blew right into my eyes. And I just couldn't see that like we're all lined up. All of these reporters from different networks and outlets, or you've seen it before, that were just all, you know, right next to the other. And right, they said five seconds and the stuff went in my eyes and I was just kind of like, I can't see. I don't know what's going on. Um, so yeah, live television is live television. I found the best way to handle it is just to be honest, like this is live TV. This just happened. Give me a moment. Give me a minute. Um, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) gotta love live TV. Okay. So that, that would be your sort of, uh, fall in the category of least favorite Lisa. So let's talk about your most favorite. Um, you've had the good fortune to be at many exciting, positive, uh, events and stories lines as well too. Is there one that comes to mind that you're just like at the end of the, at the end of your shift that day, when you got back to home or to your hotel, you're just like, I actually got paid for this today. Any moments like that? Well, certainly, you know, being at a super bowl, uh, big, big events like that, NBA finals. Um, I, I really felt that way after Kobe Bryant's last game and, you know, hindsight being what it is now, as special as it was then, it's even more special to me now to know that I was um, there for that game. Um, I remember uh, even asking months in advance when the schedule came out, you know, the Lakers were no good that season and everyone knew they weren't going to be any good. And Mike DiRico had said to me during the Monday night season, he was like, Hey, Kobe's last game is going to be on the, I think it was the 16th or 13th of April. And um, he said, you should try to get on that game. And it was a Wednesday game. The Lakers weren't in it. We knew we were going to televise the game, but they didn't have a reporter assigned to that game. And I was like, hey, can I go do that game? And they're like, yeah, sure. And um, it was just uh, it was just a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with him. He was in such a great mood um, uh, in in the production meeting beforehand. There was just like no angst or stress or he was just so happy. It was just like it was he was about to have a birthday party. Uh, and he was just so uh, comfortable and at peace with his decision that this was going to be his last game. And um, yeah, that was one of those times where I thought like, yeah, they didn't have to pay me for that. Like I would have gone to do that for, for nothing. Well, Steve, since we have Lisa here, it's only right. I think that, that Lisa be the, the spotlight on our Q and a presented by conquest hockey, uncompromising premium athletic apparel for those who play to win. So Lisa, here's today's question is um, for aspiring sideline courtside or even potential news reporters what are the three keys to success writing writing 
and writing. Wow. That's what I would say. Got I mean, anybody can look good in front of a camera, but you've got to be able to write a, write a story. Writing, no doubt, writing. Okay, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a great writer, but you say that's a key. What do I do? Just write? Do I expand my vocabulary? How do I do that? Keep doing it. If you're a student, you know, get, you know, listen to your instructors. If you're, uh, if you're kind of aspiring, you're already out, out of school, um, you know, pick up a, pick up a newspaper or, or, or turn on the news, see a story, see, and just, and try to write, try to write a story based on what you just saw or pick anything out, out in the world. See if you can, if you can replicate, uh, what a journalist would do. The easiest way would, would be to like, have an internship somewhere and to be with another reporter that you could shadow that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I tell people that you've got to be able, especially in live television, you don't have four or five minutes to tell a story. You've got to be able to tell stories, you know, concisely, uh, efficiently. Um, this isn't print. Uh, like, but even if you are in print, like obviously you've got to know how to write if you're a, a print journalist, but in television, it, you know, being able to write is just as important as being able to write as a print journalist. You just, it's just something you, and, and that's not something that everyone can do. So, you know, if everyone could do it, everyone probably would do it. Uh, but you can, you can work on your writing. Um, and there are keys to teaching you how to be a good, concise writer. Uh, but you just have to be willing to do that. But to me, that is the most important thing uh, about journalism. What I tell people is be conversational. Pretend that you are telling the story that you've just that you've just written. Pretend and write it that way that you were just telling a friend of yours uh, what happened. So you don't you're not trying to impress your friend with big words. No, you're just trying to tell the story, um, anticipating what questions your friend is going to ask. So uh, yes, practice in front of the mirror. Uh, practice in front of friends, family, loved ones. Um, but also just be conversational. And, you know, they tell you to just forget. I, I tell people when we're doing interviews as well, just forget the cameras are here. I know that can be hard with the lights and, and you know, the camera, the five, four or five cameras sometimes if there are. But th what I like the most is when people finish an interview and they say, wow, wow, I forgot that the cameras were even here. Great. That means I've done my job to make you comfortable. Um, so just you've got to be comfortable. You've got to just... That's your office. When those lights go on, the lights in your office are on and you, and you have to be ready to go to work. Uh, but just just talk as if you're talking to somebody, you know. And how important is listening, Lisa? Got to listen because the person could say anything. And if you just plow along with the next question on, in your head, then you've just kind of missed out. Um especially if it's something really obvious that, that the person said, and you're going to get crushed for that. Why didn't they ask the follow-up question? So um, it sounds counterintuitive, but you probably should go into an interview with less questions than more. Uh, and that sounds scary, but you'll find if you go in with less questions, you'll listen better. And listening better just lends itself to, to better interviews, I think. That's excellent information. Thank you so much, Lisa. That's our Q&A presented by Conquest Hockey. For all your premium hockey apparel needs, check them out at conquesthockey.co and use the promo code INSIDE15 for 15% off your next order. 
Lisa, thank you so much for uh, your time today. It was awesome to chat with you. We probably could have gone 60 minutes with you today. Maybe you'll be kind enough to join us for another 30 at somewhere down the road. Sounds good. Happy anniversary to you guys. And thanks for having me. Thanks, Lisa. In the immortal words of Dr. Seuss, Cat in the Hat, Steve, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Man, we, we could have gone at least another half an hour with Lisa. That was unbelievable. Now, was that Mike Myers' Cat in the Hat, or was that in the actual Dr. Seuss book? Because that Mike Myers' Cat, that's unwatchable, right? <laughs> totally. No, this is, this, is, uh, this is the original Dr. Seuss, yeah. Legit Cat in the Hat. Legit. Okay, I need that stuff cleared up. So I started in my career, probably once a week, I interviewed an NHL player for a feature that we were going to do on Hockey Night in Canada. And I found that when I went into these interviews with a series of questions, at the end, I never ended up getting to a lot of them that I wanted to get to. And I thought the better interviews ended up being more free flowing. Mm -hmm. So what I started to do was I would just start to do a little research on the player that I was going to talk about, but I didn't do too much research. I just knew about five overall bullet points that I wanted to touch on. And maybe I'd go in with a clipboard and a piece of paper. Maybe I wouldn't. And we would just free form it. And the beauty of that is, as opposed to live television, if I do a 45 minute interview with Al McGinnis, the defenseman for the Flames, we can cut it down to whatever we want. We only have to use the best three or four minutes. I thought it was interesting when she talked about her career arc and how it wasn't at all what she would have predicted for herself. Do you think if you lined up 100 people in live sports television, how many would tell you their career went exactly like they might have mapped it out at the start? Uh, that's a great question. I, what I will tell you is for the mass, the masses of the people, that, they're, that it worked out the way that they, they wanted it to. But for a handful or half a dozen of people that I certainly know in my life, uh, it didn't. It wasn't even close. But when all the dust settled, it worked out way better than it was for them where they were before, unknowingly. I'm not sure what I'd have said if you'd have said to me, you know, 35, 40 years ago, where will you be in 35 or 40 years? I have no idea because I had a really strange start to my career in that I started in the pinnacle of Canadian sports television, producing Hockey Night in Canada. So there really is nowhere to go from there. There's no up from there. There is no up. It doesn't exist. And I'm not even sure there's lateral with Hockey Night in Canada. So that when I look back, to me, that's a really weird structure of my career. You can't say no to the job when you get it at 21 years old. But if I'd been sentient enough to think of it at the time, I would have thought, I wonder where this is going to go because there is no up for it to go now that I think about it now. And that strikes me as strange. What about game prep? Do you over-prepare or under-prepare? I feel most prepared when I'm not really that prepared, when I'm going to rely on my instinct and rely on what I think at that moment and what I see at that moment. And I find that works best for me is to do it on intuition. I do this podcast that way. I'm sure it shows my apologies, but that works best for me. It doesn't work for everyone, but I know it works well for some people. I know it sounds strange, but it does. I go into every event overprepared. Um, I, I've got flip charts in front of me and notes and the script <laughs> marked up so much that there's no white left on the paper. 
Uh, but I'll tell you, I, I when, when the bullets start flying, you get into the heat of battle. I'm not, my head's not buried in it, but I just feel like you can never be too prepared. Uh, but I'm at that stage in my career where I can have both, right? I, I can be loaded for bear with preparation, but I can also just throw it in the trash and just, and, and, and redo the entire thing off of instinct. That's only because I've been doing it for 20 plus years and, and, and with reps comes experience and confidence to be able to get to that level. But it's rare air, let's put it that way, in our industry. Everybody's got a plan until somebody throws the first punch. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Steve. Let's just say that'll be the knockout punch for E25. Uh, remember, if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. Don't forget to follow Inside the Truck on Twitter, Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram to keep up to date with what's going on with the show. And subscribe to our Inside the Truck channel on YouTube for all kinds of bonus content. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening in Bangkok, Thailand. Ooh, that's exotic, Paul. We have listeners there. Have you ever been to Bangkok? Uh, I have spent one night in Bangkok. (laughs) <laughs> yes, so, I'm so sorry, everybody. Yes, the world was my oyster. Okay, that's it. Turn off his mic, please. Thank you, Lisa Salters, for joining us. You keep listening in Bangkok, and we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck.